ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Norman, I've got to say I'm kind of glad that we do this show remotely from each other because I'm glad I'm not in the same room as you today. Yeah, I've got to be a bit of a runny nose, but I've done my cover tests and I'm negative. But yes, we should be very glad we're separated. Although it's not just you, it feels like everyone I know is really sick right now. I'm just kind of (laughs) waiting. Hopefully it's not my turn anytime soon, but I guess this is just like a normal winter now that people aren't social distancing all the time anymore? Well, people are getting, that's right, people are getting upper respiratory tract infections from winter. They're probably coronavirus-type infections and others. Flu's kicking in and uh, kids are in hospital and there's a wave, almost certainly a wave of COVID-19 on at the moment as well. Apart from getting all of the doses of vaccine that are available to us, is there anything else we can be doing? Wearing masks, N95 masks, you know those things? Oh, that stuff. Yes, I remember now. I remember now. It's all coming back. Oh, well, let's do a podcast all about the coronavirus and other nasties as well. Uh, It's Coronacast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turrbal land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 31st of May 2023 and I'm coming to you from Gadigal land. Now, Norman, I really want to get stuck into long COVID today. But before we get there, a bit of, I don't know, like a little news wrap. Because as we were talking about last week, a lot of Australians are behind the times when it comes to having their most up-to-date COVID vaccination. And one particularly vulnerable group that's under-vaccinated is people in aged care. Yes. I mean, according to one report, the Federal Department of Health's data suggests that only 40% of aged care residents who are eligible for a booster vaccination have actually had it. And if you take into account the level of immunity from previous infections, then it's about 50% of aged care residents have adequate levels of immunity on recency of infection. It's not clear exactly what the overlap is there, but nonetheless, we're still seeing an under-vaccinated population who have got the potential to be quite seriously ill, and we've still got high hospitalisation rates. It's like sort of a perfect storm in a bad way in aged care. You've got people who are in close quarters, they're older and often in poorer health, which means they're at higher risk of bad outcomes from COVID, but also because they are in care, accessing vaccination is hard. Like during the original part of the vaccine rollout, people, it was federally organised, people were going into aged care facilities to do those vaccinations. Now it's a lot patchier. Yeah, although in theory, there are still ways of doing this and it should be better than it is. And so there are questions to be answered, just how attentive the system is being to getting vaccination levels up in aged care. And another thing that's been in, uh, that's sort of come to light in the last week or so is an analysis by people in the Medical Journal of Australia talking about Australia's COVID-19 rules, the sort of restrictions that we had during lockdown times. And there were sort of two different things that felt like they were happening at the same time, which are kind of mutually exclusive. There was this sense that everyone was in lockdown and following the rules and doing the right thing. And there was also simultaneously this sense that there were lots of people doing the wrong thing and going out and breaking the restrictions. And these two um, social science researchers have tried to basically figure out which way it is. Look, this is a report as you, this is a report by Zoe Leveson and Ian Walker, and they did a survey of 1,700 people in 2020. Remember 2020? No, I'd prefer to forget it. Thank you. Yeah, first year of the pandemic. And look, we'll give you the, the, the link to that in the uh, website for Coronacast, but 
Essentially, they found what a lot of people have found over the years, which is when you ask people about their behavior, they think it's average. If you think about the bell-shaped curve, we don't think that we're extreme in our behavior. We think we're in the middle of how fast do we drive, how much do we drink, and so on. We're in the middle. We're not at the extreme. And that's what these 1,700 people felt. They were average, when clearly some of them were misbehaving or not following the, the rules. And in fact, when you look at later measurements of objective data in terms of compliance, you know, there were increasing numbers of people not complying with increasing lockdowns, which is what you'd expect. On one hand, we were kind of celebrated for having such tough requirements here in Australia, Norman, but maybe people felt like they were so tough that they wanted to rebel against it. Like, how does research like this inform how we respond in the future? Look, it's just a reality check on when you put in provisions like lockdown, the extent to which you can expect people to comply. And probably near the beginning, which is what this one was, pretty high levels of compliance, uh, on self-report, which probably did man- match reasonably well the extent to which they were complying, but it deteriorates with time. And it's just about, there's only a limit to what you can get by asking people about their own behaviour, um, because it doesn't necessarily accurately reflect what they're doing. Well, let's talk about long COVID because I did promise that at the beginning. It's one of those things that we know it's a thing. We've been talking about it since quite early in the pandemic, but we really lack a clear definition for it. And I was just just from my own network of people talking to people recently. One mate said he thought he must have had long COVID. He'd had COVID months ago, but only started feeling, only sort of realised that he was feeling normal again in recent weeks when he started feeling normal again and then realised how not normal he'd been feeling previously, but it wasn't sort of disabling. And then at the other end of the spectrum, a person I know has had such disabling long COVID, incredible fatigue levels that they're unable to work. And we talked to a woman quite early in the pandemic who'd lost her sense of taste and smell for months on end that had obviously had a big impact on her quality of life, her ability to eat. We really need a clear definition if we're going to be able to quantify the sort of the burden of it and also treat people properly. Yes, and the World Health Organization definition doesn't help very much because it's really the, it's really all encompassing. It's it's almost any symptom after about three months three months or after in terms of of, a, of an acute infection. The Americans have some American researchers in a study called the Recover Adult Cohort, which has published data up to April of this year. And they've defined long COVID, they've got a name for it, which is post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, which they're calling PASC, P-A-S-C. And they have really dialed this down to a core set of symptoms. And they've looked at a a broad range of symptoms, about 44 symptoms, uh, contributing to, uh, and they they get a score um, when you actually interview people Um, or get them to fill out a questionnaire. So it's like the different symptoms you've got and then like how severe they are and it adds up to a a score out of what, 10 or something? I'm actually not sure what the score is. I should know that, but I actually don't. But nonetheless, it is a score. And and what they've boiled this down, so looking at, they followed 9,764 people. Some of the most, most of whom were infected, but some of whom were not infected. So they were able to do a bit of a comparison. And what they found that there were certain symptoms that really did contribute to the PASC score more than others. And these were, there were 12 of them, post-exertional malaise, so you took some exercise and you felt pretty crap afterwards, fatigue, brain fog, dizziness, tummy symptoms, palpitations, changes in sexual desire or capacity, 
loss or change in smell or, or taste, thirst, chronic cough, chest pain, and abnormal movements. Those were the 12 that really contributed most significantly to PASC, whether or not you had these symptoms six months or more after the infection. And what they found was that after December 2021, which is really the Omicron era, 10% of people were PASC positive at six months. So we've been quoting figures of some people say 30%, some people 3 or 4%. They're quoting figures of 10%. So it's a pretty good study and, and well done. And what they found was they didn't report well. It's not easy to actually see what the reduction was with immunization. There was a reduction with immunization, but not quite as dramatic as other studies have shown. So we've been quoting on Chronocast from previous studies, maybe a 30% incidence of, of long COVID, but probably less well-defined than this is. And uh, down to three or to a tenth of that, three or four percent, if you've been immunised. But based on this, there's probably less of a reduction with immunisation, but there's still a reduction. So this is not so much about what to do with to treat it; it's about finding a definition. And I suppose if you could get um, some consensus around this, that you then take that score to your that 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 helps triage people in terms of what kind of interventions they have, or if you need to have paid time off work, you can sort of show that you've got a certain level of severity. Yes. And given that we're probably talking about more than one syndrome here, that they found different clusters. They found about four different clusters. There was a cluster one, which was dominated by loss of smell or taste. Then all the other clusters had varying levels of fatigue. But So you had post-exertional malaise and fatigue, and that was cluster two. Then add brain fog, that was cluster three. Then add palpitations, so that, that was cluster four. Four main clusters there. A and different causes. There may be people who've got persistent virus in their bodies. You've got people who may have abnormalities in their immune system. And so... If you've got a definition like this, you start to be able to categorise people into causation and for clinical trials. So, for example, there's a clinical trial of antivirals in people with PASC or long COVID symptoms to see whether that helps. Now, if, you're, are, if you've got a group of people who are, have not got well-defined disease and then you do a clinical trial, what are you measuring as an outcome when everybody's when it's a catch-all of all sorts of symptoms when the antiviral may actually only help people with a certain cluster of symptoms? So this helps research as well. Right. So if they're saying 10%, we've sort of played with numbers around this before, as you mentioned. I feel like everyone I know has had COVID with a couple of exceptions. Does that mean 10% of the people I know have had some sort of long COVID? It may be. Um, we don't have good data in Australia, so we just don't know. It's very hard to go an anecdote here, and some people it may be quite minor, but if you actually get asked, we gave them a questionnaire, you might elicit the fact that they've got these long-term symptoms, but whether they're bothering them or not is another matter. The good thing about this study is that it wasn't whether people were coming forward for care, it was people who were being actively followed and researched independent of whether they were coming forward for care. And that makes this a bit more accurate. The other thing that's kind of interesting about COVID is that we've, we're here for the beginning of it, which means we can study things that happened before it and then we can study things that happened after it. Could there be long flu? Could there be long RSV that we just have never really kind of identified before because we've had flu and other viruses around before and don't really have a baseline? 
Well, this takes us into the territory of myalgia encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, where there almost certainly is an element in uh, ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, which is post-viral, and it lasts longer. So it's well recognised that particularly severe viral infections can leave you with fatigue and brain fog, not necessarily for the rest of your life, but for a period of time. So that, that's a well-recognised phenomenon. And some people believe that with different viruses, you can classify the symptoms, again, a bit like COVID-19, in different ways. And at the beginning of COVID-19, when you started to see long COVID or extended COVID symptoms going on, they felt that they were a bit different from chronic fatigue and myalgia encephalomyelitis. And most studies have said, well, there is a category of long COVID or PASC, which is very similar to ME and chronic fatigue in terms of the patterns of symptoms. And then there are other patterns of symptoms. But I think that people with ME would say that not everybody is post-viral. So there's other things, there are other things going on there. So what do we do with this information now? How should it be informing how we respond to people with long COVID or PASC or how we fund research? Well, in Australia, we've had a report recently um, from the, from a parliamentary inquiry into long COVID, which has made several recommendations about getting consistency, about definition. I mean, at the moment, they've said, well, we should follow the WHO definition. But as I've just said, that's a bit loose. Um, this gives you a bit more specificity. Uh, GPs need a way of categorising it in their electronic medical records so that it's there's a consistency. If you're a GP in New South Wales versus a GP in Western Australia, you're recording it in the same way and you can more accurately track this. So accurately measuring what's out there in the community and then getting more specific treatments that are good for the different types of long COVID is the next you know is the next challenge and that's going to require an international cooperation between researchers to test out various assumptions. Well Norman I do fervently hope that whatever virus is plaguing you at the moment does not give you any sequelae. We'll leave it there for this week. Yep, and I'll just go off and blow my nose. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Bye. 